Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified. I hope you're all having a great day, a great Thursday morning, or Thursday morning at least in my neck of the woods, and it's a beautiful day in Northern California, so I hope you're all having that same kind of a day. Please welcome my guest today, uh, Leah Wheatholder. She is many things, my goodness. She's an MBA, a certified fraud examiner, a private investigator, a a certified public accountant, and she's also CEO and founder of her own company, which is Workman Forensics in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Welcome, Leah. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm excited to talk to you because uh, you've done some things that I think are uh, groundbreaking and uh, forward-thinking. And so uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of forensic accounting, the key issues of uh, investigating fraud and all kinds of things. So, yes. uh, yeah, so your background, you came out of, uh, you were an FBI employee. What was your position in the FBI? Yeah, so uh, when I was in between my undergrad and uh, grad degree, I had an opportunity to work on the West Coast for one summer for 10 weeks under the FBI's honor inter- honors internship program. And as I finished that program, they had just launched a student trainee program where we could go back to our local field offices or resident agencies and work for another two years for the FBI. And so I was studying accounting, and um, I'm here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and so I was able to come back to the uh, resident agency while I finished my degrees and um, work under a forensic accountant here at the local um, office. That's very exciting. Where were you in uh, on the West Coast? I was um, in West Virginia, Clarksburg, West Virginia, at the Criminal Justice Information System. Oh, I'm That's sorry. I thought you said I the West Coast. For those ten weeks. Yeah, I thought I thought you said the West Coast. I misunderstood. Um, well, oh, I'm sorry. That's... I said I did say West Coast. I meant East Coast. Apparently, I okay. was turned around today. <laughs> okay, my ears aren't bad any <laughs> after all. <laughs> okay. Nope, that was uh, on me. <laughs> all right. So, uh, yeah, that's that's really exciting. What an what a great opportunity. So, you were already majoring in accounting, though, at that point. Is that right? Yes. Yes, I was. So that was a perfect fit for you, and then. Um, then you got really interested in the kind of accounting that uh, is forensically operated to do fraud investigations and people that do bad things with financial issues. Yes, yes, I did. Um, and I, I ended, it was at that point I started working in public accounting um, once, because my position with the FBI was only for two years as a student trainee. So I kind of needed to decide where, what was I going to do with my life after my dream job? Uh, So I looked at staying in the bureau, but there was nothing that really was a good fit at that point. And I wanted some diversity of experience. So I did what quote unquote, all good accountants do um, and go to do my stint in public accounting. So I worked in tax. And while I was there, the public accounting firm, had uh, they started getting inquiries about forensic accounting cases, primarily with embezzlement or divorce. Uh, since I'm in Oklahoma, we do a lot of there's a lot of um, tribal work that you know people want to know what happened to the money or regulatory issues with the money. And so um, they said, "Oh, Leah worked for the FBI; she can figure this out." It, it was not the same thing at all, but. <laughs> I started looking at cases from the private sector and what I could get, um, just had to learn about the different types of evidence that I could get as a private citizen rather than, um, you know, working for law enforcement. So started looking at that and I did that for a couple of years in addition to the tax. And that turned into a year long busy season 
just with the tax busy season. Plus, I never knew when I was going to be working a case. And so at 26 years old, I was completely exhausted and needed to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And someone suggested, what if you start your own agency and your own practice? And so that's when I looked at, um, well, I actually started my own practice and then became a private investor, private investigation agency, a PI. And then um, we've been in business ever since. So I started that 12 years ago and we're still going strong. That is fabulous. Leah, what does it take to become a private investigator in Tulsa, Oklahoma? So it's been a little bit since I've done this, but um, there's a couple week course that uh, an individual has to take. I believe you have to have a high school education or GED in the state of Oklahoma to take this course and go through the licensing program. There's a couple phases that have to be taken and, you know, determine whether you want to be on armed or unarmed. We are an unarmed agency. So uh, we don't have to, there's not as many courses and stuff to take when you're unarmed. Um, and and we don't do any security or anything like that. But um, so you participate in this course for a couple of weeks and then take a licensing exam. And then you're a private investigator and kind of wow into the world to do, work your cases. So I don't know if it's like this in every state, but in the state of Oklahoma, if you want to be a more traditional private investigator, um, you in Oklahoma, you really have to seek out mentors and so forth to get that experience and, and what you need to kind of launch your career. Yeah, I was going to say in California, we have uh, we're required to work 6000 hours or three years full time unless you have a law enforcement background where you've conducted investigations. And then you've given some credit for education, but, uh, and then take mm -hmm. a state exam. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's a little bit more um, interesting. Yes. Very interesting. So, um, so I'm so excited, Leah, about all the things you've done. And, uh, but we want to talk about forensic accounting, and then we'll kind of merge this, these other things into it. But one of the things I do want to mention is that you also have a podcast, but yours, uh, yours is every other week. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And and so, you talk yeah. about many things that we're going to be talking about today, actually. Yeah. So our podcast is the Investigation Game Podcast, and we talk about all things investigation. So it's not just fraud investigation or forensic accounting or numbers. Um, the last two episodes were actually with private investigators and they, the last, this week's was about nursing home um, abuse and neglect investigations. Mm -hmm. And the one prior to that was about missing person investigation. Okay. So it, it's a wide variety. Well, it's great to meet you. I uh, seldom meet somebody else that's doing what I'm doing. How long have you been doing it? That's a good question. I think two and a uh, three years, three years. Okay. And um, I think we have around 90 episodes of either mini-sodes or full episodes, which our full episodes are only about 30, 40 minutes. Okay. All right. That's great. Well, congratulations for having a successful podcast. Um, it's great. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, tell us what forensic accounting actually is. Yes. So I feel like that's been the majority of the last 14 years of my life is defining what, what forensic accounting is. Um, so forensic accounting, forensic basically means can be used in a court of law. So forensic accounting means it's accounting that can be used in a court of law. Um, but that's like the official definition. How it's actually used and described and, and how we describe it at Workman Forensics is that we identify what actually happened when there's some sort of financial dispute um, that either is in litigation, could, be, could result in litigation, uh, or maybe we're preparing something for law enforcement, but we're going to use financial information and financial data to um, bring clarity and to explain what happened and compare that to what should have happened. That's a common analysis that we perform. So, um, so in doing that, we're able to communicate to either the client, law enforcement, a judge, jury, attorneys, whoever are in client or, you know, in 
target audience is, this is what happened. And um, this is what should have happened. And then, and usually there's some sort of loss that results. So this is the loss to this company. This is the loss to this individual. This is how much money has been hidden in a divorce case. This is how much income has been understated in a divorce or child support um, issue. So we're always quantifying some sort of loss. But then conversely, we can perform forensic, those same procedures, but use it in a kind of the opposite direction where we're working with a criminal defense team or any, or even civil defense team to say, okay, the other side is saying, or the government is saying, this is what the loss is related to an embezzlement or a bank fraud or um, Ponzi scheme, whatever. And we can then say, all right, we've looked at the evidence and this is what we actually think happened. And this is where, what we think the loss really is. Who are most of your clients? Most of our clients are either, well, right now, and it kind of changes from year to year, but most of the time it's some sort of embezzlement or partnership dispute. So our clients are the companies who have suffered the loss. The other largest kind of section of work that we do are divorces that involve businesses. So um, like businesses that the parties getting divorced owned, own in some way. Uh, and then we also work a lot of estate and trust cases. And in those cases, sometimes our clients are actually attorneys um, on behalf of their clients, or it could be a beneficiary of the trust or estate. And how often do you find that there's some kind of misconduct? A large majority of our cases, um, we find fraud, misconduct, or something, whatever. Typically, it's very rare that we get a case, although not, we're not going to find problems in every single case. And the way that we approach our cases, uh, we're trying to find out what actually happened, not what our client said happened. So we do have cases sometimes where our client is convinced that their spouse is hiding money or assets, or there's an embezzlement or something like that. And uh, we'll, we'll actually find that, that nothing happened um, for whatever reason. Sometimes it could be jealousy, imagination, trying to get someone fired, but that's really a low percentage of the cases that we work. The majority of our cases, we're going to find something. We're going to find some area of missing money. So if you're involved in a dispute and, some, and the other side brings in a forensic accountant, you should be worried, <laughs> I suspect. Right. <laughs> okay. So you have developed a, a process, Leah, the data sleuth process. Can you talk about that? Sure. So um, the data sleuth process really came from a necessity for me. So I mentioned earlier that when I started my business workman forensics 12 years ago, it somebody just suggested, hey, why don't you go start your own business? I had never planned to own a business or anything like that. I really thought I would be an FBI agent by this point in my life. And um, so when I started working with forensics, I would take on cases and I'd work them myself, but there weren't very many forensic accountants in town. The other forensic accountants in town were semi-retired CPAs. And so they had a lot of experience and they could look at financial information and then testify that based on my experience, this is what I think happened. Well, at 26 years old, I knew that I couldn't compete with that because I was not going to be able to say the same thing on the stand. So I, because of the way that I had been taught to work cases at the FBI and working cases that needed to meet the, the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt, then I had to base all of my investigations on best evidence and best data. So I started trying to work every case from the standpoint of what's the best data in the situation and how can I use technology and that type of data analysis to tell me what happened. Then I can sit on the stand and say, I know because of this best evidence and best data that this is what actually happened. So that's how I started working cases. Um, it's, it worked. So some of those semi-retired CPAs would actually start referring work to me because experience doesn't trump being able to say this is what actually happened based on the data and let me show you where it happened. 
So okay. whenever that started working, we started getting larger cases. And so I needed help. Well, I had all these years of kind of getting to figure this out on my own and lots of unique experiences that I couldn't just, you know, share that part of my brain real quickly with someone else. And so I needed a way to bring my team with kind of help, you know, reduce that learning curve for my team to be able to work cases with me and get them caught up. And so it's taken a good bit of time, but over time started realizing, okay, this is how we can harness a, this is how I work cases. Like we literally mind mapped me kind of like to, to see what am I doing on all of these cases that could then be duplicated so that other people with different skill sets could be plugged into this process and help us work these larger cases. So for example, I have someone that is amazing with data processing. Any type of data that we get, it has to be put in some sort of digital format, like a in a t- tabular format, so like a spreadsheet. So we have someone who's excellent at that. We have someone else who is a data analyst. She's actually a geologist by education and experience, but she was so used to large data sets, so now she's working with financial data. Then we have people who are very experienced with auditing and uh, and so forth. And so we're able to plug in everyone's skill set into this process because the process that we follow is the same every time from case planning to the type of data we use to the analysis we perform and then how we uh, present our findings in a simplified manner to any of the audiences I mentioned earlier, then we can duplicate this and have a, a high quality, reliable work product so that whenever I go testify, I'm I can confidently rely on the work product of a team rather than having to do every single step myself, which has allowed us to to work a large number of cases and also just work on really large engagements. So Leah, can you give some examples of uh, the data that you follow? Is that possible? Yes, sure. And it's actually simpler than you would think or than most people think. But the majority of financial financial investigations are based on bank statement data or transactions, credit card statements, and payroll reports. That, those are the most reliable data sources because we, those reflect what actually happened in an account. That tells me where money came from. It tells me where money went. Then the other set of data that we will use for context not to rely on it 100%, but to use for context, we'll use accounting records. And that's where that accounting uh, experience and expertise really comes into play. So then someone can say, okay, you know, this check was made payable to our subject and it was recorded in as a piece of equipment. Well, there's no reason that this payment would go to our subject for $10,000. We didn't buy a piece of, you know, client didn't buy a piece of equipment so forth. So then that's where the context comes into play. So, but the data sources we rely on to determine whether money is missing, stolen, uh, any type of loss typically results from bank statements, credit card statements, and payroll reports. So do you take those reports, those bank statements, payroll reports, et cetera, are, do you take those and input them as data entry? Yes. So we okay. will... Um, prepare a table of this information of, and most common is bank statements. So we'll, I can just talk about that. So we will take PDF bank statements and we'll convert that to a spreadsheet. Um, we have some technology that helps us. We use something called Money Thumb, and so it will import all the tra- or export all those PDF transaction transactions into an Excel spreadsheet. And then the part that's still kind of manual for various reasons is there's some the information that are on checks, which is most common in company accounts. That information has to be hand-entered. Uh, but in addition to that, we do a lot of other things that prep us, help us prep for other analysis. For example, uh, with credit card statements, it will list locations, um, and then also you'll have a posted date and a transaction date. So whenever our data processing specialist is processing credit card statements, she can go into, go ahead and tell us, okay, hey, look, just so you know, all these transactions happened on a Saturday, and maybe it's a company credit card, and they weren't working on Saturdays. So we try to pull as much as we can from those transactions and understanding what 
the details within those transactions represent so that as part of that data processing step, we, we can extract that at that point. Then it's prepared for our data analysis step to, to give us a little bit more context. So but it how, all starts with a spreadsheet. How does uh, data sleuth the, uh, divert from what traditional forensic accounting is? Um, so the data sleuth process is, okay, let me say it this way. I don't know how to work a forensic accounting case without the data sleuth process. However, okay. I know that it's done because that's how I did it before I created the process. Where okay. um, the data sleuth process is, we really think that our secret sauce is in the first step, which is our case planning. And it's how we break down what is a client actually needing and wanting out of this? And how do we connect what a client is very um, charged about, what they're emotional about, with the type of analysis we can perform and what we, you know, what we actually have access to? And then use our experience to also identify, okay, we know the client is concerned about items A, B, and C. But when we look at their situation, we actually think they also have risk areas in, you know, X, Y, and Z. So this case planning happens where we take the client's concerns, we understand what analysis we can perform, and we know what data sets are available. And then we prepare a case plan where we can communicate to the client, you know, forensic accounting isn't magic. We just know how to, we know where money's hidden and we know how money goes missing. And so this is what we can do to address these concerns. And then in creating this case plan, it keeps us on track because I'm sure, as you know, as a private investigator, there's so many rabbit trails that can pop up in a case. Mm -hmm. And um, we just, this helps all of us stay on the same we make sure that we're addressing the, the concerns of highest priority. And so then we're able to stay on a budget and we're able to really get cases to the finish line. Sometimes finishing a case can be the most challenging, especially when there isn't this plan at the beginning. Um, and sometimes additional needs or concerns are discovered throughout a case because it is an investigation. So we just update the case plan. But the data sleuth process by planning that from the beginning helps us then identify the analyses that will answer those questions and, and address those client concerns. And then by having these, by identifying the analyses, what we started seeing was, oh my goodness, we're performing the same analysis on so many cases. So then we were able to automate those analyses. So we've built macros and different things to make our process more efficient. So we can now look at what somebody else might be able to do by hand and look at six months of information. We can look at that. We can perform the same analysis, but more efficiently. So then we can look at three years of information in the same amount of time and budget. Um, and, and at the same time, it makes our work product extremely reliable. So you found it so successful that you wrote a book. On, I did. On your process. And that book is called, why don't you go ahead and say it? Uh, data Sleuth, Using Data and Forensic Accounting Engagements and Fraud Investigations. And that came out just this year, correct? Yes, it came out in April. It's available on Amazon or anywhere else. Um, people buy books. And it's uh, published by Wiley Publishers. So uh, yeah, I'm really excited about it. I wanted to be able to communicate this process um, for several reasons, but one, to just be able to just to really share what I had learned and what my team had learned over the years about using technology and forensic accounting for the sole purpose of making it available to more individuals so or companies. Um, because just with the use of technology, it just makes an investigation, that financial investigation more efficient. That way we can serve a broader audience. It also, like I said earlier, provides for a more consistent and high quality work product. And um, as a, I 
testify. I'm a testifying expert. And so a lot of times when there's opposition or if I'm brought in to work, especially on the defense of a case, I was finding where someone hadn't relied on a data-focused process for their testimony. And so then I was hired to, you know, bring clarity and, and show what actually happened. And I thought, gosh, if we could just all do this this way, everyone would save a lot in legal fees and not have these dueling experts over things that are factual. And we just need to understand how to, um, you know, put this together on a best evidence basis. So I wanted to share that for the community to serve other people so that hopefully other people are being served just as well as I think our clients are. And um, then also I wanted to have a way that as our team continues to grow, that this is a manifesto for our team, that everyone who joins the team can understand that if you're on the Workman Forensics team, this is how we work cases. And it's just a really good um, launching part for someone who may have a lot of experience in audit or tax or even uh, private investigation or law enforcement, but they can understand and, and start learning a lot more quickly, oh, this is what Leah's talking about whenever we're planning for these cases and working these cases. That sounds uh, just fantastic. Uh, Leah, we need to take a, just a really quick break. We'll be right back. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Hey, my guest today is Leah Wheat Coulter. She's from Tulsa, Oklahoma, a private investigator, certified fraud examiner, uh, master's in business administration, all kinds of things. And she's written a book called Data Sleuth. Let me see what this is. Data Sleuth, Using Data in Forensic Accounting Engagements and Fraud Investigations. So, Leah, your, your book targets um, law enforcement, uh, CPAs. Is that what your, what your target audience is? And other investigators? Okay, so, but you'd really have to be... Even an investigator, you'd have to really be a CPA or accounting background to use this process, wouldn't you? Well, I, towards the end of this book, I actually addressed this a little bit. Um, and I've prepared for uh, a, an online subscription company, actually a presentation about how PIs 
can use the data sleuth process to investigate embezzlement. Um, and so what I like about the data sleuth process, just kind of how it's unfolded over the years, is that because the primary data sources of a financial investigation are bank statements, credit card statements, or payroll reports, mm -hmm. anyone can look at these and identify um, and, and, and even use the data sleuth process to identify okay, this should have happened, this did not, this should not have happened. This benefited the company, this did not benefit the company. Where the forensic accounting piece comes into play is looking at the accounting records. But a lot of cases can actually be worked from bank statements, credit card statements, or payroll reports. So okay. um, that's why I, the data sleuth process is really set up where anyone can do it. I think that the part that's most valuable to maybe somebody who doesn't have an accounting background would be to bring in an accountant or somebody, um, whether they're CPA or not, but some sort, someone with an accounting background to provide some of that context if there's a company involved. But mm -hmm. if we're looking for hidden assets or even money stolen from an estate, typically the majority of that can be worked from, you know, bank statement, credit card statements. And uh, so you don't necessarily have to be an accountant to work these types of Interesting. Financial investigation. Okay. So what is the longest time you've taken to work on a case and come up with a conclusion? We had a case with a school that lasted about a year. Um, but the majority of our cases, if we, it, it kind of depends on the type of case and who we're having to get information from because that could slow us down. But we can usually have a case worked in about three months. So, quite a uh, but the longest would be about a year. Wow. Okay. What, uh, what is your most memorable case? I have quite a few. I worked close to 200 cases in my career by this point. And so um, some of the, so I, I made note of some that I put in the book, um, but one of the ones that we talk about the most, and actually we have a training game, it's called the investigation game, case of the man case. We actually have a training game about this case, but we call it the case of the man case. And I'm in Oklahoma. So there's a lot of oil and gas um, companies around here. And this was an oil and gas company. And this guy had worked for the company for about nine years. And um, the CFO was retiring and, we'll call him Bill because that's what we call him in our case study. But so Bill knew that the CFO was retiring and they were asking him, do you know of anybody else, any of your friends, whatever that might want to take this role as CFO. And Bill said, Oh yeah, I have a friend. So he brings his friend in and his friend starts trying to get up to date with everything. And his friend had worked in audit and CFO and uh, jobs before. And he started noticing that the bank accounts weren't reconciled. And for a company, uh, I know maybe we don't do that as much in our personal lives as, as used to, but because of digital things, but in a company, that's really important. Your financials aren't reliable unless uh, you've reconciled your accounting records to what, ha what actually happened at the bank. So he started noticing that there were a bunch of cash withdrawal slips that, or I'm sorry, checking withdrawal slips that had not uh, been reconciled yet. And so he asked the bank to provide the, other side of that transaction. So a checking withdrawal slip that we might see on a bank statement has a second side to it. And it's either going to be a cashier's check copy, or it's going to be a ticket that says that cash was received. It's called a cash out ticket. So um, he makes this request and all of these cashier's checks come back. And as he's looking through the cashier's checks, he sees an LLC that he recognizes as belonging to Bill and because they had been buddies and friends. And he thought that's Bill's like racing business. He had this, he would set up LLCs to sponsor different racers in um, it's, I don't actually know the technical name of this kind of racing, but here, whenever they compete in Tulsa, it's called the chili bowl, but it's indoor racing and they're really small, like race cars. Um, okay. But, like people drive them. It's not like remote controlled or anything, but anyway, okay. 
So he would sponsor a bunch of drivers. And so the new CFO recognized this. And uh, so then he went to the partners and said, hey, you know, I, I think you actually have a problem with Bill. And Bill was like a son to all of the owners of this company, all the partners. Um, and so they called an attorney. The attorney called a veteran private investigator in town. And uh, he's fantastic at interviews and getting information out of people just through interviews. But whenever there are financial situations, he would call me. And so he called and we started going through the bank statements and identifying all of these checking withdrawals as far back as possible. And because uh, the bank only keeps bank records for about for seven years, it's kind of the max. So we went back about seven years. But I started with the most recent year at the time and put together a list of transactions that were paid to things that didn't look like it would be oil and gas related. And so I started using the Secretary of State website to research some of these LLCs, and we ended up finding four or five LLCs that belonged to Bill and that he had checked cut to his LLCs, or he had done these checking withdrawals and gotten cashier's checks to these LLCs. But in addition, he also used cashier's checks to um, pay different companies like to buy a truck or a trailer or uh, race car equipment that or boats, actually. And um, so we ended up putting this little sample together the PI interviewed him first, he confessed everything, and then he agreed to meet with me so that we could go through specific transactions so that he could tell me, yes, this was for the company, no, it wasn't, and then we could track it down from there. In the end, um, for the time period we looked at, uh, he had stolen about $3.1 million, and the majority of the money had been used to purchase things. So, uh, it was to sponsor the race cars, to buy the race cars, to buy the equipment for race cars, to fix them, uh, boats, trucks, like I mentioned. And the reason this was called the case of the man cave is that uh, he also would buy actually um, like one of a kind firearms and have them imported from different places. And uh, it, as part of the interview with the veteran PI I mentioned, he asked him about all of these things he had purchased. And he said, you know, what about all these firearms? He said, oh, I just bought these for my buddies. Um, what about all these race cars? Oh, I just bought these for my buddies. Like he would buy all of these toys, for lack of a better term, so that his friends would come over and hang out with him. And he really just loved being that guy that had all the cool stuff and people would hang out with him all the time. And so if you're going to have all of these toys, then you've got to have a place to store them. And so one of my favorite findings on this case, just because I think it's crazy, is that he actually had a $100,000 metal building built on some property he owned to store all of these things. And he paid for that $100,000 metal building with his company's, with his employer's money. So the... Well, um, yeah, wouldn't, oh, I, just, I just have a question. Wouldn't cash withdrawals from a company be a red flag automatically? That's a great question. So, yes, it should have been, um, but this guy was so – he was the operations manager, but he – and so he had the power to go and buy things for people – for the company, and um, because he would actually run operations at different well sites. So he had the authority to buy whatever the guys needed to do their jobs at the well sites. So – I'm assuming this In was, oil and gas – Was this a small company? Yeah. It was a smaller company, yes. Um, And they also, in oil and gas, whenever a new oil and gas company will form, vendors will require them to pay with cashier's checks so that there's guaranteed funds. This company had been around long enough. They didn't really need to use that process anymore, but Bill kept that process going because it benefited him. He ended up just using that to benefit him. And... um, So what would happen was the CFO would say, hey, I don't know what you purchased with this. Bill was also a finance guy. And so he would go in and code everything that the CFO, the previous CFO didn't know about. And so that's what allowed him to do that. So that's why the CFO didn't really see it as a red flag because it had been a process of theirs 
And it was just kind of normal, even though it didn't need to be happening. And he did have the authority to be making large purchases. Well, how ironic it is that he referred a friend who actually caught him <laughs> stealing. So I know. That's I, I still talk to this friend, you know, the current CFO um, every now and then just to check in. And we are always puzzled by that. Like, why did he hire? And maybe he thought that his friend, you know, oh, he's my friend. He won't say anything. I don't know. But the friend definitely said something. And then um, once the loss was quantified, I referred it um, with the client's permission to the FBI. And then the FBI brought in the IRS criminal division and he was, um, he was, he, he pled guilty. He cooperated. So he pled guilty to not reporting this 3.1 million on his tax return. And, um, then he was sentenced to three years in prison and he got out a couple of years ago. And the, um, there was also a civil case that was filed at the same time. And so, with the help of that veteran PI and the sheriff's office and other things, they, the day that they confronted him, that the PI confronted him, they actually went out and gathered as much of the stuff that they could and, and seized all, the sheriff's office seized all of that. And then he turned it over to the clients. The clients were able to have an auction and he even relinquished the land he owned with that metal building and so when everything sold and after the fees were paid, the company recovered about $900,000. So they got about a third of their loss back, which is really, it's very sad, but it's really, that's a really good recovery in, in an embezzlement case yeah. like this. And so you got all the fruits of his theft, um, as much as could be recovered at any rate, to auction yes. off. That was great. Wow. Is the company flourishing now? Yeah, they're still in business and still doing great. I think they had quite a bit of cleanup to do. And as with any of these cases, you'll think, I mean, there's kind of a point of diminishing returns. So, you know, we knew Bill was never going to pay back more than $3 million. He probably won't ever even pay back the $3 million, uh, or, you know, what's left over after that auction. But um, so that's kind of where our investigation ends usually is, okay, this person's not going to pay this back, so you can keep paying our fees, you know, but you're just throwing good money after bad at, at a certain point. Um, but there's always long-lasting effects of this. So even a couple years later, they called us and said, hey, we found something weird in the accounting system. And while there was nobody to prosecute about it or anything, you know, because Bill was already in prison, um, there was still just cleanup that was taking place even a couple years after it had been discovered. Amazing. Would you say that would be your most successful case, or do you have another one that you uh, really feel good about? Um, so my very, I have a lot of cases that I feel pretty good about. Um, <laughs> in the book, I do share a couple stories about um, cases that I think just went wrong. I don't think how we handled it was wrong, but just, just some kind of those cases we talked about before where a client thinks that they have a problem, we go in, we look at the data, and for either lack, lack of information, lack of controls, just for a lot of different reasons, we end up having to tell the client, you know, I know that you think this happened, but we're not finding evidence of that. So I, I talk about that in the book. But the rest of the cases, I, I don't know, I, I was kind of like all of them. Um, but another one that I think, well, I have a, a lot that are interesting, but another successful one was, it was my very first case after I started working forensics. I had been in business for three months and had no work for three months. And then um, I get a phone call from an attorney who was working with a nonprofit who's pretty sure they had an embezzlement. So I go talk to the assistant director. The executive director had been put on leave. And I go talk to the assistant director, and he starts showing me where... Um, the nonprofit had been paying credit card bills. And he said um, that he had been, the executive director was retired, was planning to retire. And so they were training this assistant director to take over. And um, so they were 
you know, the executive director is trying to show him how he pays the bills and how he records them and all this stuff. And um, so as they're working on the financials, he sees that there are payments to a credit card, but it was part of the nonprofit's um, standards and kind of core values that they didn't operate with debt. So he thought, well, that's weird. Why would we be paying a credit card? Well, throughout this process, the executive director would take credit card, the credit card statements, would hand them to the assistant director and would say, please shred these, just kind of as part of a, like this guy being his assistant. Well, after he was seeing these payments out of the nonprofit accounts, he thought, I think I'm not going to shred some of these credit card statements so I can see what they are. And that's when he discovered the next time the executive director handed in the statements, he looked at them and saw that they were just withdrawals at casinos just thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And so um, the attorney was called and then, you know, I was hired and we were given the largest bankers boxes I've ever seen in my life, like 11 bankers boxes. And this organization had thousands of dollars in uh, donations and revenue every year. I'm sorry, millions of dollars in um, donations. And so the, attorney said, hey, we're going to file a civil suit. And so we have 10 days before our temporary injunction hearing. And because they were going to try to freeze the executive director's assets. And so I remember I had to recruit friends to help me enter the data because this was pre me having any type of technology. I don't even know if it existed back then. And so we're all sitting around my dining room table inputting bank statement information into an Excel sheet so that I can testify at this hearing. And um, anyway, I ended up testifying at the hearing. The judge granted the temporary uh, restraining order, froze his assets. But at the end of the day, not only was he paying his credit cards through the nonprofit, but he was also any cash that came in, any cash donations, they weren't making making it to the bank either. And so this guy ended up stealing $1.5 million from this nonprofit. And oddly enough, this is a nonprofit that was set up to um, help men work through addictions and primarily drug addictions. And so this guy, while he had worked through his drug addiction, he had picked up um, a gambling addiction while he was working there. So um, he was charged federally. And then um, he was also put in prison. Not all of my cases end up in some sort of <laughs> criminal prosecution. They'll be yeah. prosecuted, but they don't necessarily get jail time. Right. Um, so I'm kind of t- I ended up telling you the two that did, but there's not that yeah. many that actually end up in prison. But um, you know, it's interesting, though. I'm sure neither one of these men realized how much it had added up because it starts small. You know, just this, just this once, and I'll pay it back, or just two hundred dollars here, I'll pay it back, and then they end up like he did with over a million, and the other guy over three million. It probably yes. had, they probably had no idea when it actually added up just how much it was. Yes, they they typically do not. Yeah. So what's in the future? We only have a few minutes left. Leah, uh, what's in the future for Workman Forensics? What are you well, about? this year we are focusing on how do we upgrade um, and kind of level up how we serve clients. And so we are really working on making our products and services available to more people in different ways. Um, and clarifying our message about who we are and, and what problems forensic accounting can solve. There's a lot of uh, and, and what data sleuth can solve by understanding where financial information comes from. We can solve a lot of problems. I remember very early in uh, starting work with forensics, I was listening to a news program and they were talking about, oh my goodness, we just don't know where all this money went. And I remember sitting there and saying, well, if you just gave me the data, I could tell you where it went. <laughs> and so we're really, you know, and that, that's kind of probably one of the most uh, impacting things that kind of led to the data this process today, just that, that realization, well, I can tell you um, where that went. And so 
looking for how can we improve our processes and technology to become more efficient so that we can answer questions more quickly for clients of all kinds, um, whether that's, you know, even government agencies, um, different companies, organizations, and, and then also by creating, just expanding the technology used within the data sleuth process, we can even start looking at how can we use these same investigative processes to help people detect fraud sooner in their companies or so forth. So I, we're just always looking to innovate, make more things, um, and just to serve clients better and serve more clients and um, just to serve them well. Well, that's fabulous. I mean, I, it's just a pleasure meeting you, Leah. I think it's so exciting that you've developed this process. And for for all of you listening, remember the book you can get on Amazon. It's Data Sleuth, Using Data in Forensic Accounting Engagements and Fraud Investigations. And uh, Leah, you want to give a contact, uh, either an email or a contact number? People could reach you if they have questions. Yes. So our website is full of all of our resources, um, and that's Workman, W-O-R-K-M-A-N, Forensics. F-O-R-E-N-S-I-C-S dot com. And um, if you want to contact us, it's info at workmanforensics.com. And uh, we'd be more than happy to schedule an appointment and talk to you. That's great. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you being on the show today. And for the rest of you folks, it's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. And thanks, Leah. Thank you. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time here on the Voice America Variety Channel.